It's Thursday morning. Do you know where your monsters are? Mine are here on Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, here with episode 331 of the podcast. We've got a lot to get to this week on the show because I've got George McGowan from Collecting Classic Monsters here to talk about the movie The Blob, a bona fide classic, one of the I don't know, can you say standards of Monster Kid Movie Dumb? I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. It's an important film. It's a really fun film. It was a great conversation that I had with George. But before we do that, I've got some feedback to go over here. This email came from Stephen D. Sullivan, frequent guest of Monster Kid Radio. He's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks as well. He wrote in talking about the movie The Land Unknown, which was a movie we talked about here on the show with Joe Iden a couple weeks back. This is what Steve has to say. Hey, Derek, this came up in the Land Unknown podcast, but I didn't have time to call in, so this email will have to do. All the Harryhausen films in black and white have been colorized, except Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. All the colorized runs were done under Ray's supervision. Those three are It Came From Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and 20 Million Miles to Earth. And they're available in a box set that includes both the colorized and black and white versions. And the prints are beautiful, and they have commentaries and some great extras, too. These are the way to see the master's work. I'm assuming he's referring to the transfers being beautiful. Anyway, Steve continues. I'm not a huge fan of colorization in general, but these are clearly the best that have ever been done. Which version I watch depends on which I've seen most recently. I tend to alternate. Ray also supervised the colorization of Marion C. Cooper's She. And also maybe the most dangerous game, which came as a bonus DVD in the She Thanks to Come Blu-ray. I don't remember if Harry Housen worked on Thanks to Come's colorization. That work isn't, in my opinion, as good as the work on Ray's own films. So far as I know, Beast wasn't colorized at the same time, or at all, because rights to it were owned by a different company. I wish Ray had gotten to do that one too, as I know he wanted to, but I don't think he did. Ray purportedly always wanted his films to be in color, but there just wasn't the budget, but I said he got to have his way before the end of his life. Oh, and Mighty Joe Young wasn't colorized, as far as I know, but that's really Willis O'Brien's film, despite all the work that Ray put in on it. When I watched Mighty Joe Young again on Ray's birthday this year, I realized that I'm now able to distinguish between the animation Ray did and the animation that Pete Peterson and others did. Not always, but much of the time. Ray's brilliance just shines through, even amid talented peers. Anyway, I love The Land Unknown, but yeah, it could have been improved with Harryhausen SFX. Still, Land Unknown is well worth seeing, and I enjoy all the dinosaurs, save the blown-up lizards, which always make me cringe, except in James Mason's Journey to the Center of the Earth, especially the plesiosaur Elasmosaurus, which is one of my favorite dinos and is seldom portrayed in any films. The other portrayal that comes to mind is the Brendan Fraser Journey to the Center of the Earth. Any monster kids got some more? That's a good question. Anyway... Steve wraps up. Despite the lack of Harryhausen, The Land Unknown is still a solid entry in 1950s universal sci-fi horror. Folks who haven't seen it should seek it out. Okay, enough of this. Now back to writing Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. So that was Steve, and if you aren't following him at CushingHorrors.com, you're missing out. I had a lot of fun talking about The Land Unknown with Joe. This movie is probably one of my favorite 1950s science fiction films. And that dinosaur, I mean, just the way it looks, the way it moves. I know it's a man in a suit. I know it's got its issues. But you know what? The, the movie just makes me smile. And that jaw unhinging, that's terrifying. I don't care how unrealistic it may or may not look. As far as colorizing movies, I'm a traditionalist. I want them in black and white. 
you start getting into the original artist wanting it in color and wanting to make changes after the fact. You start getting into Star Wars Special Edition territory, and then it's just, ah, oh, it's a little cringy sometimes. But you're right, I have seen at least Earth versus the Flying Saucers colorized, and it was very well done, so I'll give it that. I haven't watched Mighty Joe Young enough to be able to pick out the difference because I'm going to have to move it to the top of my to-watch list, you know, because there's nothing else there right now. Steve, thank you for writing in. And listeners, Steve's going to be on the show again here in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that. We also had some voicemails come in, uh, more comments on the land unknown from Mark Bailey. Hello, Derek and Monster Kid Radio Land. This is Mark Bailey of the New York City Giant Monster Attack Map, and I just wanted to leave a brief message about your last two episodes. As a lover of giant monster movies, The Land Unknown holds a special place for me as I first discovered it as a kid on our local Creature Features back in the 70s or early 80s. What hooked me was, of course, the T-Rex costume and other great-looking dinosaurs in the film. I always found that using live lizards to be a very cheap alternative that borders on animal cruelty, you know, when they glue horns on them and make them fight, and it was just rather unpleasant. But not here, the land unknown delivers. The dinosaurs in this low-budget film look very well-crafted and are quite memorable. Thanks for the great episode. The Frank Delestrito episode was wonderful. He's so knowledgeable, yet you makes you feel as if you're old friends. Yes, please, Frank Delestrito, do a Monster Kid episode. We want to hear more from you. Lastly, the room service dramatic pause had me on the edge of my seat for what seemed like an eternity. You just don't get that in other podcasts. Thanks again for all the great episodes, guests, and Monster Bash coverage. And Derek, please take good care of yourself. So long. It seems like the land unknown is getting thumbs up across the board. Good call. And as for Frank Dillostrito, listeners, if you haven't checked out any of his books, again, go to cultmoviespress.com. Check out what he's got. His current book, the most recent book, the werewolf book, and you cannot go wrong. So good. And if you want to check out the New York City Giant Monsters Attack map, go to foxtrotstudios.net. And you'll find it there, or just follow the link in the show notes. You know what else will have a link in the show notes? A link to the Supermates podcast, the show co-hosted by our next caller. Hey, Derek, it's Chris Franklin from Supermates podcast and Firewater po- Fire and Water Podcast Network. I spit that out right. Uh, just wanted to call and say I really enjoyed your episode on Return of the Vampire. The Frank Delastrio presentation was fantastic. I have loved that movie for several years. I think uh, I found that movie in a DVD bin at a food line, believe it or not, for five bucks. So uh I you know, I had no idea it even existed and I was really happy to find this this movie that in a lot of ways I think it's I hate to say it, it's superior to a lot of Universal's output around the same time. Especially the later Monster Rally movies where, you know, things start to get a little less sophisticated and more pointed straight toward kids. Uh, you know, the wartime theme, I mean the Lady Jane Ainsley, I mean what a character. I mean, Cindy and I covered uh, Return of the Vampire on Supermates and our House of Franklin sign segments a few years back, and we both just really, really enjoyed that character. I mean, I think that character has a lot of potential. I'd love to see somebody else do something with that character. At the time, we kind of got a Agent Carter kind of feel off of her, and, uh, you know, Haley Atwell would make a really good Lady Jane Ainsley if everybody, anybody's looking for a movie project. Uh, that'd be like great casting. Haley Atwell, Vampire Hunter. How's that? So yeah, I really, really enjoyed that movie. I loved what uh, Frank said about uh, the connection between the uh, Dracula 
and uh, the Larry Talbot to Andreas and everything, and I, it works for me, man. So, uh, again, great episode, and anytime you want to talk more about Return of the Vampire, go for it, because I think that's a that's an underrated gem that a lot of people probably don't know a lot about, and it's always good to spread the word about great movies like that. So keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. Bye. I know that recently Haley Atwell has been in the news, or at least on a couple of websites, talking about what really happened behind the scenes and why Agent Carter, the TV show, came to an end and how she was cast to be in another show at ABC, and that kind of sunk Future Adventures of Peggy Carter. But then that show got canceled. It didn't do very well. So is there a possibility we'll see Peggy Carter back either on the big screen or the little? I would love to see her. I think Haley Atwell did an amazing job playing that character. I didn't watch all of the Agent Carter series, but I'd love to see her come back. And if she's not going to come back as Agent Carter, yes, bring her back as Lady Jane Ainsley. That character deserves so much more attention and appreciation. For a film in the 40s to have a strong female lead, aggressive, assertive, without being abrasive, that's the kind of female character that I want to follow in a film like this and I would love to see a series kind of spun off with her. You know, listener of the show Frank Schildener recently posted on Facebook a question. If you were able to write any character whether you can have the rights to it or not who would it be? Well, I posted Argo Man, but then I would also put up Lady Jane. I would love to see more vampire or monster hunting adventures with her. You know, bring Andreas in. Bring in the werewolf guy. Just bring in that whole crew and I would love to see it on the screen. I think Haley Atwell would be amazing in that. So somebody let her know, okay? Uh, (laughs) Return of the Vampire, it's such a great film. Is it superior to the Universal Monster Rallies? Well, technically, yeah. I love the Monster Rally films. I love Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, and House of Dracula. I love these movies. I think they're great. They're fun. They're lighthearted. They're kind of breezy, and they're very romp-y. Is that a word? Doesn't matter. But Return of the Vampire, while it does have some of that, it also has some real serious stuff going on. And technically, I think it takes a little bit more to, to pull that off. And that's why I think it might be a stronger film. No offense to the others, but yeah, it's just got so much more going for it. Plus, it's got Bela. You can never go wrong with more Lugosi. Now, over at the Supermates, Chris has got something cooking for this Halloween. Every year, they turn their podcast toward the horror and... Now you're going to hear a promo for what they've got coming up this year later in this episode. Thanks for calling in, Chris. Now, if you want to call in, you can call and leave a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can send an email or an MP3 recording, which is what Mark did, to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And I'll play you on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. It doesn't have to be about this week's episode. It can be about any of the previous 330. I would just love to put you in the mix. Okay, why don't we go ahead and get to the meat of this episode, the the blob of this episode. We're going to talk about the blob with George McGowan. George McGowan, like I said, is the man behind Collecting Classic Monsters over at CollectingClassicMonsters.com. We're going to talk a little bit more about what he's up to in this recording with him. But of course, the bulk of the conversation is about the blob. It's such a great film. And then after that, I've got some more content from Monster Bash, and it is blob-related. It's all connected, and that's all happening right after this. A world-famous scientist, greatest living master of the occult, has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. What happened to Dr. Waterman? 
only one man last to see him alive knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox. In supernatural color, Equinox. The supermates couldn't stop it. Amazing. It's incredible. The Fire and Water Network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf. With only one desire in my mind. To kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula. But I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. You see before you a man who has lived for centuries. Kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you'd call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed the evil of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House House of of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. 4D. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, 
the bedeviled master of all that is evil. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, if you've read the most recent issue of Scary Monsters magazine, you saw a little bit about this guy, and I've got him on the show now. We're going to fully flesh out the picture of who is George McGowan. We're going to talk about collecting classic monsters, the blob, and well, who knows what else. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek. It's really, really fun to be here. You've been listening to the show for a while. We've been in contact with each other. Thank you for making this happen. I've been wanting to have you on the show for quite some time. Well, likewise, I think we've been probably talking on Facebook about various movies to talk about and different things for a couple of years now. And it's it's great that uh, the Monster Kid stars have aligned. And, you know, I think we got a lot to talk about. There's just a lot of stuff happening out here in the Monster Kid radio world and collecting classic monsters world. So really glad to be here. The stars are right. Okay. <laughs> CollectingClassicMonsters.com. It's Collecting Classics Monsters website. For listeners who don't know what it is, and there's going to be a link in the show notes, can you tell people what it's about? Uh, sure. Absolutely. First off, I'm a monster kid. I'm a 70s monster kid, you know, which was really kind of that echo boom time from the the monster kid OG of the 60, right? 60s. But, you know, <laughs> I grew up at a time when movie monsters were on TV on Saturdays and, you know... There was a ton of classic monster toys and the Aurora model kits were still around. And, you know, if you think about famous monsters on the newsstand, those were my great influences, just like a lot of other monster kids. So I'm sort of that second generation. And I always had that collecting gene and and was fortunate enough that my my mom didn't throw everything away when I sort of got into that stage where I sort of lost interest and became interested in other things like sports and girls and all that stuff. Instead of tossing it all, <laughs> she stuck it away in the in the back of a closet somewhere. It, it, it kind of came full circle when I became a dad and my parents were retiring and they said, what do you want to do with all this stuff, all these old Marvel comics and famous monsters magazines and toys from the 70s and it just really kind of reawakened that gene in me so i brought all that stuff home about 10 years ago and said all right this is really fun and nostalgic and 
and started digging through everything and then asked the question, what's this stuff worth? What's it look like out there with the in the the time of eBay and 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 you know, the world of collecting now has changed. And I started digging into all the resources out there and frankly got overwhelmed and frustrated because there was so much information, but it was so scattered in bits and pieces everywhere. That blog really started as my own personal journal of the things I had and trying to figure out you know, more details about it. And over time, realizing that there are a lot of other people out there like me as I got more active in the collecting community and stuff, the mission really became about over time building sort of this aggregate go-to place that tells the stories of all these great Monster Kids products that I grew up with. And it's expanded since then from 1970s Marvel comics and movie posters into exactly as the title is, Collecting Classic Monsters. So I focus on vintage and modern collectibles that really pay tribute to the kind of movies that you cover on Monster Kid Radio. And it's focused first and foremost on the sort of the hobby of collecting. And it's a one-man show. It's a labor of love. I spend as much time on it as I can, um, which is never as much as I'd like. But uh, (laughs) something where, you know, I try to get one well-researched article up every week. And then I, you know, just like everything else, try to build community and answer questions and help people who are trying to buy or sell uh, in terms of connecting with each other and and really uh, try to add value to the Monster Kid Collector community. So that's what it's all about. I was chuckling because you said you don't ever spend as much time as you need or want to on that. And I'm like, oh, I wonder this. Let's. That's a podcaster's life right there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the, the day job, you know, I, I guess I'm pretty lucky because in my day job, I actually um, am in um, the collecting business as well. So the two align pretty well. I'm the chief marketing officer for a collector's social marketplace called collect.com. We have an app in iTunes and iTunes and a website. And it's a it's a free community for collectors to upload their collections and then you know, socialize around it as well as buy and sell. So the fact that that's what I do during the day, it's pretty easy to be able to manage my my website alongside of it and because the topics are both pretty well aligned. So I guess I am lucky that way that the day job aligns pretty well with my passions. Hey, there you go. That's the dream, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, it's pretty fun. You mentioned Scary Monsters. I, I'm really excited about that. The current issue, which is on the newsstands now, I think it's issue 105. Don and I met, and um, he did a really nice interview of, of me about collecting classic monsters. I was really honored to be nominated for a Rondo as first-time um, nomination this year. And when you're a little one-man show like CollectingClassicMonsters.com and you're up against you know, media company blogs and websites. It's just an honor to be nominated. But that connection led Don and I to start talking about a column in Scary Monsters to address collecting. And so we're going to extend the Collecting Classic Monsters from the website into an ongoing column in Scary Monsters with uh, the next issue. 
which is 106, where we'll kick it off and it'll be uh, just focus like I do on the website. I'll focus on one toy or one company or or interview a collector who has a really unique collection. And, and we'll have that as an ongoing series um, starting with the next issue this fall. That's amazing. Scary Monsters Magazine is still one of the go-tos when you're looking for classic Monster Kid content presented in a modern way. Scary Monsters, that, that's where you want to go. And I was thrilled to see that you were mentioned in the magazine, you got the interview, and that you're going to be doing an ongoing column now. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. And I know I've said it to you before, but congrats on the nomination for the Rondo this year, man. That's a big deal. So well done. Well, well, thank you. That means a lot coming from a from a past winner. Believe me, um, well deserved and an ongoing nominee. It's it's exciting. I like I said, you always want to win. You know, I'm competitive well, competitive yeah. enough to, to acknowledge <laughs> that. But I was blown away. I did not know the nomination was happening, and frankly, I discovered it when I was going through the ballot, looking at who you know I was going to vote for, and there I was, which was just truly exciting. And what that means to me is that somebody out there. Their uh, values, what we're doing on collecting classic monsters, and that is, at the end of the day, what it's really all about. And obviously, I hope I'm nominated again next year because, again, it's indicative of the fact that um, I'm adding value to somebody, some reader out there. And yeah, to win would be really cool, and then I get to be in the same club as you, Derek. <laughs> it is, of course, an honor to be nominated. I know it's cliche to say that, it but is. it really is, especially with something like this, because you do get in that same club as a lot of the more corporate, a lot of the more professional, quote unquote, professional contributors to all this stuff that we love. And that, that's just amazing. Of course, I'd love to have another one. And, you know, my, my Rondo Award needs a tag team partner. I, I would love to have a second one right. on the shelf. But that said, every year that I'm on the ballot, man, it means so much. And I'm sure you're going to be on the ballot for years to come and eventually we got to get you that win man well thank you thank you as a collector i want to get that rondo hat and award <laughs> for my collection you there know you go. <laughs> the ultimate collectible there you go i right? love it right i love it <laughs> so you you know being a fan of this kind of thing you said you're on the the, the echo boom of the monster Kid generation yeah. which is a great way to put it you've got your fingers in a lot of things online and, and really kind of celebrating all this. And recently you went to the famous monsters convention and, and I know we have movies to talk about and all that, but I got to hear about the con. How'd it go? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think when I look at my great influences, I, I was born in 66 you know, I can't just answer the question about the con until I answer the question about famous monsters, right? That's fine. Hey, man, this is what happens when monster kids start talking. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, exactly right. You know, I, I was at that comic book spinner. You know, I'd hop on my little Schwinn banana seat bike and take my allowance money down to buy Topps bubblegum cards and Spider-Man comic books from as, as early as I could as a kid. And I never really paid attention to the magazine rack. And then... It was about 1974, right? So I was about eight years old. I looked up and I saw the cover, the issue by San Julian of Sinbad fighting the skeleton. 
And that painting, Famous Monsters, just blew me away, right? As everybody has that story, whenever you talk about Famous Monsters, it's it's always what was your first issue? What was the cover that grabbed you? And, you know, so it wasn't a monster. It was those Ray Harryhausen fantasy movies that were such so connected to sort of the, the comic universe that I had really grown up in. And I grabbed that and I never looked back, right? I mean, Famous Monsters and Forey Ackerman was the same kind of muse that Stan Lee was to me as a child and to so many of us who grew up at that time. And so that was really the first thing I ever collected was Famous Monsters. And you know, I, I look back, I have a lot of those copies from when I was a kid, and every issue, I had filled in the Captain Company order form in the back in my little eight-year-old, nine-year-old handwriting, and never got to order anything, right? But it was just seeding the collector gene in me um, at that early age. And of course, now that's the stuff I go back and try to collect at a at quite a premium compared to what Captain Company was selling them for back in the day. But that, that connection I have to Famous Monsters and so many of us have is something that I really cherish and really celebrate a lot on collecting classic monsters. And so now, you know, lo and behold, I'm actually a member of the press, as are you, right? You know, because we cover those things. I go to conventions and, you know, one of my other projects that I, I can't really talk too much about is, but David Weiner, who was the last editor of Famous Monsters, who in my opinion did a beautiful job of, of returning Famous Monsters to the, its sort of sense of wonder and, and balancing nostalgia with kind of current films and things like that. He had a nice three-year run on the magazine. He and I are working on some cool projects together. So I've stayed close to um, kind of the modern iteration of the brand, which is unfortunately no longer a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, but Phil Kim, you know, believes in connecting with fans and putting live events together. And uh, frankly, he does a beautiful job of orchestrating well-organized events. The challenge with the last one, to be frank, was it was Memorial Day weekend in Dallas, Texas. And if you've been to Dallas, Texas in late May, you know that it's super hot and uh, it's a holiday weekend. So I imagine most people were down at Galveston or you know the coast cooling off. Um, because the attendance was really, really pretty poor. Oh, that's too bad. Which was too bad. You know, Christopher R. Mem was down there, um, and as a as a guest and and as a vendor, and um, he's got quite a following in Texas, which is great. And he told me that he did great at the show. Um, so it was one of those things where there was a really great mix of guests and celebrities. They did, they had the directors of Shin Godzilla and, the, and a, a showing of the movie and some really cool stuff there. But uh, it just felt like, you know, a couple of the days, unfortunately, that the guests and the vendors outnumbered the fans, which was too bad for everybody involved. For me and those of us who were there, though, it meant really great access. <laughs> You know, we uh, I sat and talked to Rico Browning, who I think you you might have kind of a, you know, a, a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I had a chance to get my picture taken with him and get his autograph. But then because there was nobody else in line, I sat and chatted with him for 15 minutes. And what a sweetheart of a guy. Oh, he's amazing. He's so cool. So, you know, in that sense, I really loved the you know, the non-rushed, non-crowded aspect that's hard to come by at a con. 
obviously that's not sustainable. So we hope that in the future, if they continue to do the famous monsters conventions, which it sounds by all reports, that's an ongoing plan that they'll be able to get the right kind of the right weekend and the right date. It also turns out that, and I'm not, I wasn't too familiar with this show, but they, there's this an event that's huge in the Southwest, and it's called the Texas Frightmare Weekend. Um, okay, yeah. and it, it is a huge horror con. Mm-hmm. I believe Blumhouse is a sponsor, and they it's more focused on horror than it is on you know, I, I would call the sort of sense of wonder, imagine movie genres that we as monster kids love. You know uh, what? Hold on. I don't think we've ever used that phrase on the show, imagine movies, but man, that is, that is so famous monsters. That's amazing. <laughs> that, okay. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think I probably should a- attribute uh, the trademark or the copyright to Forrest J. Ackerman for that. Right? <laughs> you know, that's the best way I can describe it because, you know, as a monster kid, we love monsters, mm-hmm. uh, but monsters aren't just horror, right? I mean, they're fantasy and they're sci-fi and star Wars has monsters in it. Right. 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 That's why I always say the genre cinema of, yesteryear not just monster yeah. movies even though it's monster kid you know it's the genre set so much stuff right. anyway i didn't right. mean to derail i just no no exactly <laughs> it's exactly right but i think the frightmare weekend is a huge event in the horror community and it draws a lot of fans from texas louisiana or you know new mexico arizona oklahoma and they come down they spend a lot of money to come down at that con and unfortunately, the famous Monsters convention was two weeks later. So um, I think there was some timing issues overall that impacted the con from an attendance standpoint. But that being said, it was very well run. I shared a ton of pictures up on the Facebook page for Collecting Classic Monsters and um, some video live streams, um, you know, Joe Mo and Sarah Karloff and some great, um, great guests there with really, you know, fascinating stuff to talk about. So I was really glad to be there. Did you get a chance to talk to Sarah at all? I did. I did. Um, on Friday night, opening night, there was a panel that was focused. It was sort of a Forrest J. Ackerman tribute panel. She was attending that. And it was fascinating hearing about her first time meeting Forey, going to the original a- Acker Mansion. And what was fascinating to me was, you know, Joe Moe, who was Forey's caretaker in his later years, up until the time he died, he was hosting the panel. And he actually explained that it was Forey who brought Sarah and Bella Lugosi Jr. and Ron Chaney all together. They were all sort of focused on their father's lineage and managing the estate and things like that, but they weren't doing it cohesively um, in a way that now they, they're much more aligned. And that was fascinating. That was really just another thing that Forey contributed is helping them understand that they weren't out there doing it alone, but there were a lot of kids of these you know, patron saints of Monster Kid Radio who are out there doing <laughs> the same thing. And that was just one more thing that Forey did for all of us. That's amazing. Sarah's a sweetheart. That's why I was asking. But, you know, you mentioned that about Forey. And I think a lot of times when we think about him, we think about Famous Monsters of Filmland. But he was a literary agent. He was an agent, too. And he did so much kind of behind the scenes, kind of faceless, you know, putting these things together, getting things out there. The legacy of Ackerman is just 
there's so much that we owe him as as monster kids as fans yeah absolutely you know and and i would also say we owe the same to jim warren without jim warren for would have never had the voice and the platform that he had for was the face but warren was the behind the scenes hustler guy who has done the two of them i owe my childhood to them you know, I think we all owe him a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I totally agree. Well, that's great. I'm glad you had a blast. I've, I saw the photos and I was so jealous. Now, by the time this episode goes out, I will have gone to Monster Bash. So I will have had my own yearly, I suppose, Monster Kid experience. Well, not yearly because I didn't go a lot. And you know what I mean? I, I, I would have had a, a blast there. And it's just so much fun to be in that environment with so many like minded people just celebrating this stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's something that you do with your website and your Facebook presence. It's something I do here on the podcast, just bringing people together. I think it's super important for us Monster Kids to keep doing that. So before we get into the rest of the show, thank you for everything that you do, George. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I love it. My friends and my passions and my hobbies are all aligned, and, and that's just something that uh, you, you can't be more lucky than, than you are when you have that. And so I echo that right back at you. You know, I, I don't go a week without listening to Monster Kid Radio, and frankly, through you, and I've doubled down on my participation in the community, and now it's something that I'm doing professionally as well as just uh, as a hobby. So, uh, you know, it goes right back at you. Thanks for for being the voice of the community and pulling us all together, Derek. Oh, man, thanks. Now, we do need to talk about how I might be able to do this professionally, but we'll do that off mic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because we have so much more to do here on the show and something that we do with every new guest, every new voice on the show. There's a a ritual. Uh, I'm not going to say a hazing because that has negative content, but there's something we do. We play the classic five. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, no, there's no wrong answers here. Now, for <laughs> listeners who don't know, anybody who might be joining us for the first time, the Classic Five is a card game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards, and each one of these cards has a yes or no, this or that style question on them all about classic monster movies. I'm going to go through five of them. When I ask George to answer these questions, there's, again, no wrong answers, so no pressure. George, are you ready to play the Classic Five? Bring it on. All right, card number one. Here we go. What is your favorite Vincent Price film? Oh, Jeez, I need to go back and look at Dr. Gangrene's series on YouTube, don't I? Because there's just a <laughs> bazillion of them. Uh, you know, it, it, it's probably, well, I have to say The Fly. It's just uh, uh, a 1958 movie that came out the same year as the subject of the movie we're going to talk about today, yeah. The Blob. But it's just such an iconic and cool looking and creepy monster. And even though he wasn't the monster in the original fly. It is just, um, absolutely one of my, I don't know why 1958 was such a great year for sci-fi horror films. I, I think the fly is one of the coolest monsters of all time. And I love the movie. Oh, it's a great film. Uh, and yeah, it looks awesome. I think people don't realize until they see it, the price is not the villain in that. And, right. You know, it, it's really more about, well, anyway, people need to see The Fly. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah, and, and they need to see it often if they haven't seen it. Yes. It's just a fantastic movie. And as a collector, um, you know, there was a Fly um, action figure, a kind of Amigo-style action figure in the 70s that is absolutely one of the my prized possessions that I had and destroyed as a child and have since replaced. It's really hard to find, but uh, I just think The Fly is so iconic and so cool. It's a great, great looking monster. 
All right. Card number two. Question number two. Ooh. Edward Van Sloan is Van Helsing, Dr. Waldman, or Dr. Mueller from The Mummy? Oh, Van Helsing. Van Helsing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't really have any sort of uh, strong rationale for that other than because of the, the iconic nature of Van Helsing as a character and the fact that he was really the first to portray it. I've got to give him that because he's um, – while I, I probably have other f- sort of favorite versions of Van Helsing out there, it's uh, – you, you don't have Dracula without Van Helsing. you got to have those two opposing forces. Right. You know? Okay, card number three. <laughs> what city would you like to see a kaiju monster destroy right now? <laughs> uh, I won't go political, so I won't say Washington, D.C., but, yeah. <laughs> but I might be thinking that. Let, let, let's see. Um, what's the capital of North Korea? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough question to answer without, you know, without sounding kind of rough. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, let's say the imaginary city of Atlantis. That would okay. be a cool Ooh. movie, right? There you go. Kaiju Atlantis. Wow. That, um, huh. There's, there you go. There's something to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I need, I need something else to fill my time with. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. Card that's, number. that's what happened to Atlantis, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Card number four. Oh, Nosferatu. Or Dracula. I, I love all the versions of Nosferatu. Frankly, I just think it's been it, when it was remade, it was done so well, and it, you know he's, he's such a creepy looking vampire. But because you're talking Dracula, sort of in general, in my mind, I can sort of do a hybrid of Bela and Christopher Lee and and all the other versions in my head, and you just got to go with Dracula. I do anyway. I'm a Legosi fan through and through. So, you know, when I think Dracula, that's what I think. And yeah, yeah. But the original Nosferatu is such an amazing silent film. A while back, I think it might have been earlier this year. I can't remember the exact timeline, but one of these stock photo companies online, I think it was Getty Images. I'd have to double check though. And I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if some people can follow it. They also do stock audio. And somebody, some group, took Nosferatu and using their vast library of, of stock audio made a sound version of Nosferatu. They didn't put dialogue in, but sound effects and everything else they pulled from their library of audio. And it's an interesting experiment. I, I don't know if I like it that way because I'm so used to seeing it silent. Have you had a chance to see that or do you know what I'm talking about? I, I have not seen that, but I'm going to look that up. So I'll look for those liner notes for sure. That sounds fascinating. By the time this episode's over, there will be a, a link that I can tell people about. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So. That sounds really cool. Yeah. All right. Final question. You ready? Yep. All right. Here we go. <laughs> you know, I love when the classic five sometimes relates back to something we've either talked about or about to talk about. What's your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you know, my, my top 10 favorite movies are are just riddled with Harryhausen. The Cyclops, I think, is yeah. absolutely my favorite. And that's no small small feat. I had the great fortune on one of my recent business trips to LA. I had a chance to get up close and personal with the original uh, dragon puppet 
that uh, stop motion maquette and that uh, Ray Harryhausen built to fight the Cyclops, right? And it was it was uh, a pretty almost a religious experience to get up close like that. Tom Woodruff Jr. has it in his in his special effects studio. And uh, it's behind glass. I didn't get to actually hold it or touch it or anything like that. But because of that, I'd almost say the dragon. But I, I got to go with the Cyclops. It's a good monster. It's a good look. Or he didn't call them monsters, did he? So it's a good little beast there. Yeah. I yeah, I guess he never really did refer to them that way, creatures or, or beasts. Well, there you go. There's the classic five. How do you feel? Uh, whew, I survived. That there was you go. Fun. That was fun. Yeah. And uh, listeners, I know I keep saying it, but I am getting very close to actually having a physical deck of this that I can give to people and, and sell. And it, it is on the way. It's it's happening this year. It's definitely on deck. And uh, it was Adweek that posted an article about the Nosferatu getting the uh, audio treatment. Now, make ah. sure there's a, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. This was an article that went out uh, in May of this year. So make cool. sure that's available to people. Like I said, it's an interesting experiment. I, I think I still prefer the original, but you know, anyway, yeah. very cool. You know, it's an audio guy, somebody who edits audio and does podcasting and getting into some other audio things in the future. I'm always interested and fascinated, uh, fascinating. It's a fascinating uh, field for me to look at. So. Absolutely. Well, that'll be great. I will definitely follow up Dave, on that when you post Doc the show Allen's notes. Been Doc that Allen's been killed. Doc Allen's been killed. That's one of the things I really enjoy. Really Steve, tell us what happened. Sort of the, well, I'm trying to tell you. The now, this thing had killed the Doc. What was it? Discover new things. Stop with it, kid. And, and you do a great job of sharing that like stuff a, out in your liner notes. It's kind of like a mess. It keeps getting bigger Should I start calling them liner notes on the podcast? Show them. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I kind of like it. I kind of like it. Everyone liner notes this week will have a link to that as well as a link to everything else. But speaking of liner notes, you've got some liner notes for the movie we're going to be talking about. Wonderful years, classic sci-fi, classic monsters, just wonderful movies that came out of that era. And this is one of the best as far as I'm concerned. It's the blob. Two teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on. I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation, and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. The Blob is, I know, when you and I started talking about all the different movies to cover, and it gets hard you know, now that you're way up here in the 300s with your episodes. You've covered a heck of a lot of movies, and I was just thrilled with the fact that this was one that you hadn't gotten to yet. It's, uh, like you said, I don't know what it is about 1958, but not only The Blob, The Fly, Attack of the Puppet People, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Astounding She-Monster, War of the Colossal Beast, It, Terror from Beyond Space, 
you know, on the brain eaters, monsters on campus, horror of Dracula, revenge of Frankenstein. That was a busy year. I wish I was going to the movies in 1958. Right. Wow. So George just mentioned pretty much every trailer I'm going to play in this episode. Right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, glad to help. You can edit that out. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I I always try to find when I play the trailers. For most of the time, I try to find a link or a connection. So there you go. There's your link, listeners. No, that, that it was a great year for genre cinema, and and that's one of the things that I wish that I had the ability to do is to see some of these movies with their original audience. I know it's impossible, but I always fantasize if I had a time machine, I wouldn't use it to go back to kill Hitler. I'd go back and watch the original screening of Frankenstein. I'd go back and see Nosferatu in a theater somewhere, which probably speaks poorly of my uh, priorities in life, uh, what I would do with the time machine, but I would love to do it. I would love to be able to see these movies like this. Oh, I, I hear you. I hear you. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough just, I live in, in uh, Minneapolis just last weekend on Friday night, there's a local, theater called the Trilon Micro Cinema, and they do uh, a lot of cool stuff. Um, They showed The Blob last weekend. And so in preparation for our conversation today, I went and and watched it on, uh, you know, I'd say the big screen, and it was super fun. And, you know, you're with a crowd of strangers, and it's a 1958 movie. And as you guys have talked about so much on this show, you know, there was chuckling at times when things weren't truly funny, but it's context and looking at it from with a modern sensibility and, and things of that sort. But uh, I think it's a movie that for being as low budget as it was, just has a fascinating backstory. It's a movie that holds up well. It's a scary monster while people attribute it to all kinds of things from the the red scare of communism at the time and you know the space race that was going on and all these sort of deeper socio-political meetings and stuff that you can attribute to movies in in retrospect. It was a non-Hollywood production, which has its own great backstory that we'll talk about, but it's a movie that really has held up well. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about on Collecting Classic Monsters is I'm a dad. My kids are 12 and 10. And so I sort of always ask the question, can you still raise modern monster kids? And, you know, while they have to have their own fandom, part of being a monster kid is being exposed to and having an appreciation for the movies that came before. And I have a a copy of The Blob on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. I showed that to my kids recently, and it scared the heck out of them. I mean, the movie is truly scary at times, while it's campy at others. That, to me, is the sign of a movie. If it can scare a 10-year-old kid today with the stuff they see even in Marvel movies, that's pretty cool. And that's a movie that, uh, by no one's standards, would should be considered something that is is a classic or that has held up as well as it has. And in my opinion, it really has. It it, it just it works even today. I think it does on a number of different levels, from everything uh, from the teenager versus the adult to uh, just the scare. I mean, it gets really kind of bleak towards the end of the movie. I mean, you have this fun adventure going on with these teenagers trying to save the city and getting the cops to come along. Come on, let's go save her. But And then it gets pretty dark. (laughs) Things seem pretty dire at the end, and it's, it's so... I mean, for lack of a better term, chilling, Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And I love this film. It really is for me, one of the classic fifties monster movies. It's, 
got it all for me. And I can sit down and pop this in, grab a bucket of popcorn, and just have a blast. It's unfortunate that, you know, we're in that day and age where people in the movie theater might chuckle here and there. But, you know, I think this one still really holds up. And if listeners haven't really seen this recently, I, I got to say, look at it again. It's really something you need to see. But, you know, I, I think most listeners probably are pretty familiar with The Blob. If you're not, yeah. what are you doing listening to Monster Kid Radio? Go watch The Blob and then come back. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I, I love it. And it, it is not one that gets old. And while, you know, you have, you know, Stephen McQueen at the time, who was, you know, the world's oldest teenager. I mean, he was like 27 or 28 when he, I think he was 27 when he made this movie. You know, before we get into doing a synopsis of the movie, do you want to spend a little time talking about how this movie actually got made? Because I think that's a fascinating story in a way that a lot of other movies that were made within the Hollywood structure, they don't have that cool backstory. But this one was made as an independent film in Pennsylvania and by a very unlikely crew of people to have made a, a Monster Kid classic. It's really interesting because, you know, you have the studio system in place. And when you think about monster movies, especially classic monster movies, I think you immediately think Universal. But that The Blob was made in away from Hollywood completely, under budget, and then immediately got a distribution deal for so much more money than they spent on the movie. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful story. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. I'm not overly familiar with a lot of the production, like the nitty gritty. I, just, I, I know the broad strokes, but it sounds sure. like you've got more information. Jack Harris, who unfortunately um, we just lost earlier this year in March of 2017 he passed away at the age of 98 you know he um, was a Pennsylvania guy grew up in Philadelphia in the suburbs and you know ultimately he kind of worked his way from vaudeville up into being a film distributor and promoter and he was somewhat frustrated by um, the product coming out of Hollywood at the time. And he wanted uh, a more interesting film that sort of tapped into the zeitgeist of what was going on at the time. I mean, you mentioned it before the 1950s. You know, we were right in the midst of the rise of teenage culture. Our society was dealing with, you know, hooliganism, as it saw from teenage gangs and all that stuff. And Hollywood was addressing that and the wild ones and Rebel Without a Cause and all that kind of stuff. Right. But they often positioned the kids as the bad guys. Right. I mean, the teenagers were, were hooligans and troublemakers and things like that. And in the earlier versions of movies that pitted sort of kids against adults. It was little kids that had, would see the monster and then wouldn't be listened to or taken seriously. And The Blob was frankly one of the first ones that took teenagers and showed them as roughhouse, you know, drag racing and breaking the law and ru having run-ins with cops, but ultimately being disrespected by, quote-unquote, the man, right? And uh, <laughs> Jack Harris wanted a film that that played to the audience um, uh, who were teenagers at the drive-ins um, and actually respected them and and given them a voice. And it was really one of the first movies that treated teens with respect. Um, and that to me is fascinating in its own right. But because there wasn't that kind of storyline coming out of Hollywood, he 
decided to make his own movie and he aligned uh, a group of partners that were certainly not um, what you would expect who's going to make a classic monster movie, right? Um, he approached um, Valley Forge Studios, which was um, uh, a subsidiary or not wholly owned, but they were part of the Methodist Church. And their job was to make informational films to spread the Christian faith or the mm -hmm. Methodist uh, branch of that. And they had made, you know, 250 some odd sort of religious and educational films. They were all shorts. They had never made a feature length film. And he approached them and said, look, let's make a movie together that we can take to the drive-in circuit. It'll make enough money that it'll help fund your ability to you know, spread the faith, if you will, in a way that you can, you can never do with the revenue that you're generating now. So let's give you a real business um, and then you can reinvest those profits. And he convinced them to do that. And so they brought on a former Methodist minister by the name of Irvin Yeworth to direct this movie, which is fascinating when you look at the film because the film deals with good and evil. But it is there are no subtexts of sort of Christianity or religion or anything that, like that at play, even though the film came out of a deeply religious sort of group of people. It's amazing to me that the end product didn't have that sort of more wrapped into it. And it, and it truly doesn't. So Jack approached them. He got them together. It was co-written by Kate Phillips, who is a former actress and a guy named Theodore Simonson. And they pulled this thing together on a shoestring budget. What I found is that they had a budget of $120,000. They shot it under budget, like you said, for like $110,000. The movie went on to gross over $4 million in its in initial release. And that's pretty spectacular for an independent film to do today, let alone back then. So Harris really tapped into something with his putting the teenagers as imperfect heroes, frankly, as a way that Stan Lee did a decade, a few years later, right? With all his Marvel comic characters. Oh, yeah. In so many ways, this movie was a first. And it's just really fascinating to me. Obviously, we, we can't talk about it without talking about uh, Stephen McQueen, the 27-year-old <laughs> teen teenager. But this was fascinating to me. I've always loved Steve McQueen. Who doesn't? I mean, the ultimate movie star, right? He was 27 yeah. years old. He was paid $2,500 for this film. And he took that in lieu of another option, which was for a lower pay, but 10% of the the proceeds, which at $4 oh, million dollars would have man. been a $400,000 payday. Oh, but because wow. he was a starving actor who needed to pay rent, he took the 2500 bucks. <laughs> you watch that movie, and you don't see this guy who only a year later would become a massive movie star. A year later, when he was 28, he did Magnificent Seven. Which is a, a phenomenal, phenomenal film. And then he was Steve McQueen, the ultimate cool guy, right? But in this movie, you know, it's pretty amateurish, his acting. And he's very likable. And, you know, he does a fine job in the movie and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that goes back to the director and everything else. But it's just amazing to me that this nobody actor literally a year later becomes this massive movie star and, and goes on until he dies, unfortunately at 50 years old of cancer in 1980. 
it's another reason I think this movie is considered a, a classic film of the 50s is because it's the first time we see Steve McQueen on film. It's really cool when you think yeah. about that, the fact that a year later he's this massive star. Yeah, I, I still get a little uncomfortable with him making out with the actual younger people on set. Yeah. But, you know, but it's acting, right? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, to that point, you know, so Annette Corso, I think is how you say her name. I think so. You know, she's 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 very pretty, and it's a very interesting role for her because the very opening scene is them at Lover's Lane kissing, right? Uh-huh. And it's a, to me, I, I like her character, right? It bugs me because she is his equal in the movie in terms of stuff. And, and, and frankly, in, in many scenes, she sort of helps helps course correct him and she sort of plays a moral compass for him and things of that sort. And she's strong in a time when he's doubting himself and, and saying, I, I can't believe what I've seen and things like that. But it is the 50s. And, you know, every adult basically says, Steve, what did you see? They never address her. They never say her name, right? They always talk to the boy and never to the girl. But what I like about her character is even in the opening scene, you know, he's putting the moves on her and she pulls back and says, hey, you know, is this why we're up here? And so she sort of shows some strength of character in a very sort of soft way, right? She's not pushy and aggressive in a way, but she kind of forces him to reconcile and, and then she decides to believe him and all that stuff. But I, I agree with you. It's a little challenging, but I, I, I liked her character in a way that she was multidimensional. And again, I think it goes back to the movie had respect for teenagers. And while it didn't have respect for the adult characters by and large, it was the adult characters who weren't giving her respect as a character in the movie and the other kids in the movie or as it says in the opening credit the teenagers you know they were boys and girls doing their thing and um you know i thought i thought that was kind of an interesting sort of nod to the time yeah i think it's easy to look at this movie and just oh it's the blob and you get blown away by the monster because i mean it's the blob it's awesome and you got to see mcqueen but there are so many other things happening here as well like her solid performances and a really interesting characterization of a 1950s female character. It's something that is a little fresh when you compare it to some of these other movies. It's unfortunate that nobody else in the movie gives her the respect that we might, right? but it, it's still fascinating to watch. And there's just so much here. So, so well, many good things. Well said, I think that's right. You know, and she is an actress, of course, she made quite a career on television. She was, on the Andy Griffith show as Helen Crump and was Andy's girlfriend and eventually wife on the show. Um, But she went on to be in Gunsmoke and, you know, and on and on and on. So this is another, while she was primarily a TV actress, she had a very long and very good career. And this was, if not her first, one of her very, very first um, acting roles. And all, all things said, you know, the movie doesn't play amateurish when you consider that it frankly was pretty much an amateurish movie. The director and the studio had never made a feature film. The producer had never made a feature film. Um, and, and then it was the first time outing for the main character actors in the film. Right. They really pulled it off, you know? By all rights, this movie probably shouldn't have been as successful as it was. Right. But there's just something about it. They captured magic or a blob in the bottle. Right. And, and, 
turned out something that transcends what could have been an interesting regional film experiment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the fact you mentioned before, what made it all work was the fact that Paramount bought and distributed the film and they released it on the drive-in circuit, you know, as a double bill with, I think it was, I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Uh, I believe so. Feature, yeah. And the blob very quickly got sort of first billing. And then after its its double feature drive-in run, I think was repackaged and re-released theatrically, and which is why it did so well at the block, box office. But it's a movie that really did capture, you know, it's what all marketers and studios do now is know your audience and play to the audience in a way that I think a lot of what was coming out of the studio system at the time wasn't doing. It was playing to the rebel and the teenager, but it was, frankly, the audience it was talking to were the adults. And this movie really talked to the kids. And so, it, to me, it makes it one of the ultimate 1950s movies, not just a 58 movie, but because of the fact that it was made for teenagers at the drive-in. I mean, there's that. You've got that music, that song, that opening title song, which I know was a thing that they would do is they would try to, they being, you know, the producers of the bygone era, they would find a title song and then release it as a single and try to get that out there as well. And it would obviously just kind of build in the pop culture. What, what is this blob song? And then you kind of mix it in there as well. And you've got that going for it. There's just so much here that contributed to this film's success and that it is taken so seriously as a teenage as hero type film and some of my favorite movies come from the 50s yeah. i love teenage frankenstein i love teenage werewolf but in the end the teenagers are the monsters in that right right, right. whereas in this the teenagers ultimately are the heroes yeah they, they and it, 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 it gives you know that audience the kids somebody to rally behind and Ultimately, maybe that's what makes this movie so timeless for me. Is that? Yeah. Granted, I like the big Jello monster. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love the monster. I love the blob. Well, we we got to talk about the monster. And before we, <laughs> oh, I want to yeah. hit on the the song really quickly. But to that yes. other point, so another reason this thing is so iconic is not only do you have Steve McQueen, you know, one of the ultimate movie stars, you know, in his early outing, you have Burt Backrack um, writing a song that was. Paramount tagged that song on after they um, they bought the rights to the film. And Jack Harris and Yeworth, the director, really pushed back on it because they oh, thought it really? down, they thought it, it lightened the mood too much, right? Huh. Um, they had a heavy, scary soundtrack that that really set a somber tone. And Paramount commissioned Burt Backrack, and I think it was co-written by Mac David. But the song got up to number 33 on the pop charts. I mean, it was a huge hit to your point, and um, probably did a lot to drive, you know, repeat viewings of the movie and, you know, back mm -hmm. and forth. Uh, you think of like the Green Slime and a few other songs like that. You know, obviously this opening scenes with the kind of the crazy graphic credit and all that kind of stuff rolling across with that song playing, it's it, it just sets this campy tone that the movie quickly turns away from and gets very serious very fast, um, I think. And so... I, I see why the directors and producers kind of pushed back on it. At the same time, you got to love that song. You know, it's just kind of funny coming from the same guy who wrote, you know, Raindrops Are Falling on My Head and everything else that Bert <laughs> Backrack put out there over the years. But it's probably another reason why this film is a classic and it's iconic is the combination of Steve McQueen and Bert Backrack and this cool, 
sort of soulless uh, monster without motivation, just consuming to consume. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think the blob is so darn scary is they never try to explain where it came from or why there's no quote unquote science talk in it, you know, like we get in the great Jack Arnold movies to explain <laughs> it, right? There's not a five-minute science lesson at the beginning of the movie. Right. Yeah. There's not. There's no explanation. <laughs> Things shows up, eats the old man, starts eating his way across town, boom. And it's scary because there's no motivation or rationale. And versus so many of the other movies that were coming out at the time that we all love, it's not a man in a suit. It's this amorphous blob. I think apparently the movie was originally titled The Molten Meteor, which was interesting to me. Uh, It doesn't roll off the tongue quite like The Blob does. But they, um, (laughs) Kate Phillips, who was the co-writer, kind of referred to it as a blob in the script when she was describing it. And I think they were going to use The Glob, but The Glob was a character in a comic that I'm drawing a blank on the name of now. So they thought they couldn't use it for copyright infringements and all that stuff. So we wound up with the name that we know and love that is a perfect description of the monster, The Blob. Which is interesting because The Blob is also the name of a character from the X-Men comics. Right, right, right. Interesting. Yeah, but just one other note on Jack Harris, which is interesting because by no means, so this was his first foray into it, but he was by no means a one-trick pony for us monster kids. I mean, a year later, he re-teamed up with Valley Forge Studios to do the 4D Man, and then Mm -hmm. a year after that, they did Dinosaurs, and then he went on to produce Equinox, and he produced a number of other things like the Eyes of Laura Mars. I think he was the producer of schlock a few years later oh okay in the the 70s dark star he was the executive producer on oh wow okay Uh, so he did quite a bit as a producer Um, he had a model he found independent filmmakers and he gave them a shot most of the time they were first-time filmmakers as in the case of landis with schlock and equinox and and all those things and he gave those guys an audience and a voice And he continued to work on The Blob. He was the producer of the 88 remake. He was the producer of the um, Larry Hagman uh, sequel, uh, (laughs) Son of the Blob, or I guess also known as Beware of the Blob, that came out in 72. The movie that J.R. shot. Yes, (laughs) right. Or that shot J. Yeah, right. And, (laughs) And he was even attached to the current remake that is making its way through the Hollywood system that, uh, a few years ago had Rob Zombie attached to it and, you know, has kind of been floating around for a while. But he continued to sort of be a caretaker of The Blob, which was his first foray into filmmaking. And all the way up until his death in 98, he was still working on keeping The Blob in front of the pop culture audience. And uh, Yearworth's son also is still doing things today. Like I said, this will be coming out after Monster Bash, but one of the guests at this year's Monster Bash is Yearworth Jr. Oh, really? and And he's bringing a piece of The Blob with him. Cool. How cool. I'm really jealous that you're going to be there. I wish I could be there. But to that same point, right? I mean, every year since 2000, the Blob Fest happens in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which was one of the towns that it was filmed in. They never refer to Phoenixville, obviously, in the movie. You know, that's 17 years of celebrating this 
this 1958 film and, you know, including, of course, the running out of the theater and all the other things that they do. Uh, the Blobfest happens sometime in June or early July, about the same time as, uh, as Monster Bash does, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. And it's something that I've never been to. I know that our friend Chris Mim and Mark Hader have been. And I think Mitch Gonzalez went as well last time. There's a video yeah. of them running out of the movie theater, which is so cool <laughs> that they do that. They reenact the running from the movie theater. And that's just awesome. I, I would love to be part of that, to reenact that part of the film. The theater still is there, and it still looks the same, and I'm sure that's by design. If they ever tried to change it, there'd be a revolt in the town. I agree. It's, I agree. It's amazing. I, I agree, and I think they, they're brilliant to tap into that. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I love, and the 1950s was such a, a, a unique time in our history, right? It was the baby boom was happening. We had come, the GIs were home and our economy was really booming and we were becoming sort of the dominant economy in the world, let alone the protector of the world. And uh, there was so much happening. The space race was beginning and all of this was was tapped into by pop culture as pop culture always does. Uh, but it's one of the reasons I think that I love the fifties movies so much is because sci-fi and horror were blended. And, um, while I'm a horror guy, I'm probably a sci-fi guy first, uh, and movies like the fly and they, you know, they, they always sort of involve science and the blob, never really does involve science other than maybe, you know, sort of them trying to figure out how to stop it to a certain degree and explaining it scientifically. But it, it really does get into um, the space race. Uh, and, and you can absolutely see why the parallels to sort of the communist scare, you know, this creeping red mass that's unstoppable and taking over everything and consuming people and all these sort of things that have been attributed to the blob in retrospect, that whether or not the filmmakers or the, the writers had any conscious knowledge of including, which they claimed they didn't, it was so much a part of everyday life at that point in time that, you know, subconsciously it probably was an influence. And I think this movie has, while you can just love it as a popcorn movie for what it is, when you start applying all the sociopolitical stuff with the rise of teenagers and teen culture and kid culture and space race and communism and Cold War, this movie really taps all of that in a fascinating way. And at the same time, we get this cool, big, ugly, scary monster. <laughs> it's got so much in there. And before we move away from it, we mentioned that song. I got to mention the film score. Yes. I've got to talk about that briefly. The film score was by a guy who is not, was not really a film score guy. I mean, he did a handful of pieces of music for film, but for the most part, he was a religious composer, Yeah, which is probably somebody that came from the same community, the same circle that the filmmaker came from. His name is Ralph Carmichael. And, I really dig the score. I think it hits all the right <laughs> notes, no pun intended, <laughs> when it comes to 1950s sci-fi horror. I think it, it blends in there just fine with all the other iconic pieces of music that you get from, say, like Ronald Stein from the Roger Corman stuff, or even the Universal stuff, even though they're pulling from their stock library. It's still a effective and iconic music, and I think the Blob score is something that deserves some real attention. People should check it out, and I think he did a great job. 
with yeah, it. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I, I think that's consistent with the rest of it. Like you said, it's this guy who had never worked on a film score, or at least a feature film score, and um, they they rose to the challenge across the board, whether it was yep. the, the the young cast or the inexperienced cast in the case mm-hmm. of Steve McQueen or directors or producers and on and on and on. And it, and it winds up being just a heck of a good movie and yep. absolutely one of my favorites of all time. I got the film score stuff out of the way. So I don't know where we are in the recording, but if listeners were waiting for like the hour 15 mark, that, <laughs> that's, you know, I, I <laughs> for somebody who loves film scores, I know very little about the actual production or composition of music. So the best I can usually do is I love this music. It's great. Isn't right. it? And then, and then we got to move on. Now, but, do, you, do you have <laughs> the film score? Is it available commercially? You know, I've got. I th- hmm, that's a really good question. I mean, I will find obviously out. Obviously, the yeah. song is you can. Oh yeah, I was streaming the song last night. I've got that on the iPod. My kids love that song, especially my ten-year-old. We play it all the time. But I was listening to it last night as I was doing a little bit of background reading preparation for today. It's it, it probably overwhelms the rest of the score. You're the score guy, and it's funny because I, having just watched the movie. I can think of the song, the Backrack song, but I can't really place the rest of the score. And so I'm going to have to go back and watch it and just focus on the music this time. And dog, yeah. another another reason to have to watch the blob. <laughs> Monstrous Movie Music actually released okay. the soundtrack. Uh, you can get it. And it's a combination of the blob and then uh, some library music that was used in some of the film as well. So I, I would recommend it. I've had David Schechter on the show in the past. That's yeah. his organ, his outfit. If you haven't looked at monstrous movie music's library, you are missing out. There's some great stuff in there. I think I can see why the filmmakers were kind of against that opening title song because it is so different than the score itself it does give it that kind of hip peppy kind of we're gonna have fun with the blob the mm-hmm. blob you know <laughs> you get that but i don't know it just to me that works it, it's all part of the charm of the film yeah I, I i think so too and you know with 60 years distance it just adds to yeah the charm is a perfect way to describe it it kind of makes it feel of its time um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, the movie, I think, just does a nice job of sort of rising above its time in many respects. It's such a fun movie that you can see so many things in, or you can just sit back and enjoy the film. Yeah. There, there's so much here. I, the kid with the cap gun, I mean, that's probably the bit that takes me out the most, is is why did this kid do this? Does he really think it's going to be helpful? Is he really that... I don't know. I don't want to say dumb, but I mean, it's kind of probably not the wisest thing to do, but they had to have a reason to get the kids in the diner or the 20 somethings in the diner. Right. So, you know, they had to go with it, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that you accept, accept, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, she, you know, obviously there's the scene earlier in the movie when Jane is, is sneaking out to meet up with Steve after mm-hmm. the, her, their parents have brought them home from the police station and Danny wakes up and comes down. And I think what you see in that is obviously the big sister, a lot older, uh, mm-hmm. The teenage sister who's very much, you know, like a mother figure and a, and a caretaker figure to her little brother and, you know, talking about maybe I'll bring you home a dog and things like that. And so some of his role, I think, is largely to your point. It's because he runs into the diner. That's why Steve and Jane go in as well. and They get captured. But it mm-hmm. plays to these kids who are on the verge of adulthood 
right? And and you see her playing a very maternal, adult-like role with the little boy, both in the house while she's sneaking out as a teenager, turning around and being an adult caretaker to this to this little boy, and then doing the same thing, sacrificing themselves as adults to take care of the children. You know, and maybe that's me reading in it too much, but I think that is the eternal challenge. You know, as a parent, I think about this all the time, right? I mean, these these children are teenagers are still considered children, but they're they're almost they got one foot in adulthood and one foot in childhood, and they switch between the two almost spontaneously. And this movie, I think, does a decent job of reflecting that if you think about the fact that they were talking to that audience, saying, "We know it's hard to be both." And that's what you are. Mm-hmm. You're both an adult and a child simultaneously. And Jane embodies that pretty well, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, it does kind of give, I don't know, it, again, it speaks to really speaking to the younger audience, the drive-in audience. And it's so amazing to me. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that a movie like this set by all rights should have been a regional little monster movie, probably didn't get a lot of play, you know, just, happened it's become an iconic film it's been remade once they're talking about remaking it again there's kind of sort of a sequel and you know before the remakes came along the blob is just iconic that you say the blob you know what you're talking about right everybody knows what you're talking about it's just this thing and to me it works on so many different levels the the teenager in in trouble and but saving the city but I'm also a huge fan of Lovecraft's work, H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft's work. And one of the things about Lovecraft is that he didn't create you know, vampires and mummies and zombies and things like that. The, the baddies, the monsters in his stories and his fiction are so beyond our comprehension. They are so out there, so different. Yeah, the Elder Gods. Right, right yeah, you know, Cthulhu and, and Niel Arhotep and, and all these under, other wonderful things that he created, Shoggoths and all that. They are so beyond anything that we could possibly comprehend. And that's one of the things that I love about The Blob is that it's so not explained. It came from space. That's all you got to know. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't look like a guy in a suit. It doesn't look humanoid at all. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have a physiology that we are familiar with. It doesn't behave in the way that we are familiar with. It doesn't behave like any known earth animal. It is so different, so from beyond, that it's terrifying when you really think about it. If you came across something like that, yeah, you're going to run screaming from a movie theater. Right. It, it is terrifying. And it's you know, who knows why it's eating people. It's just doing what it does. It doesn't need a five minute science lesson to explain why or how we figured out how to stop it. We're going to box it up and send it there and call it good because that's all we can do. Right. And and that's one of the things that I love about this film too. Yeah. I think that that does makes it terrible. That does make the monster scary that it doesn't, you know, you and I share a love of the creature from the Black Lagoon, and yes. but we can attribute reason to the creature's actions, which is at first defending his homeland, if you will, and then, um, you know, falling in love, right? So we assign mm-hmm. uh, sort of human, you know, like reason to the creature. The blob, there is nothing, right? It, it is emotionless. It's faceless. Uh, it is just all consuming and it just eats and eats. And we don't know where it came from. We don't know if it literally destroyed the planet that it came from because it ate the whole thing or what happened. And we don't need to know. And that's one of the things that makes it, to your point, so effective, I think. 
some good good stuff here. Now the production of the film, pretty solid. The music we already talked about. You want to talk about the blob itself, what it was made out of, <laughs> yeah, and how it still exists to this day. <laughs> oh, man, how it still exists to this day is is fascinating to me. I mean, really, the blob was largely silicone and red vegetable dye. Um, mm-hmm. In a couple of scenes, they used um, a balloon and then they covered it with the goo to make it slimier looking. And you can sort of tell that. It was really interesting. Even on the the Blu-ray I have, the blob holds up really well because they were smart not to spend a lot of time on the blob. Uh, but what I really was intrigued with is how they made it move um, and how effective that it really is for the budget. I mean, you know, you don't see strings and things like that. At the end, there's a few scenes where the town is actually painted and they and miniaturized and they have the blob kind of going up against the diner which is a one-dimensional painting of the diner and they're rolling the blob uh, the actual silicone down a slope so that it looks like it's moving toward it but then they took a model of the actual diner and they and they put it on a gyroscope and then they put the silicone they covered the the model with the blob itself and then they moved the gyroscope so that the blob slid off of the model. And then mm-hmm. for the film, they played that in reverse. So it looks like the blob is actually, you know, climbing up and, and covering the, uh, uh, the model of the, of the uh, diner itself. So it was a pretty simple and straightforward, inexpensive way to do it. They were smart enough because this film was shot in like really rich color um, which was also kind of unique for the time, right? A lot of movies were, especially yeah. B movies, were were still black and white. Um, they used that color effectively because the blob got more and more red and darker the more it ate people. And you can obviously appreciate why because there's parts of people inside of the blob. <laughs> yeah. You know, at least the blood and all that stuff of the people are inside there. But they there was some subtlety to it that made it really work that that way, I think, which was effective. I have no idea how there's still part of the blob left, unless it's like the balloon or some <laughs> fossilized piece of silicone. That'll be fascinating. You know, I do have um, these liner notes from the mm-hmm. Criterion Collection. They were written by Kim Newman, who's a novelist, you know, he wrote Anno Dracula series and um, he's a contributing editor in Sight and Sound and Empire Magazines. You know, obviously the Criterion minor notes are always really great. And maybe mm-hmm. without reading all of them, there's a couple of pieces in here that, you know, maybe I'll share with you and you can just yes, make it makes sense. So this was interesting, I think, when it starts to talk about other movies. Scripted as the Molten Meteor which groups it with such tales of runaway mineral menaces as the Magnetic Monster in 53. Uh, One of my favorites. Yeah, the Monolith Monsters in 57. The film benefited from the retitling. The blob sounds archly absurd, yet without the hyperbole of the monster that challenged the world or attack of the crab monsters, both in 57, and perfectly describes its villain a massive ooze from outer space that absorbs every living thing it comes into contact with. No one wonders whether the blob is animal, vegetable, or mineral, and it's up to the viewer to decide whether the alien has a malign purpose or is just a natural threat like the weather. There have been blobs before in popular culture, the muck creature in Theodore Sturgeon's story It, the chicken heart from radio's Lights Out show, and the comic book character The Heap, 
super forerunner of the Swamp Thing. Mm. While the infected astronaut of Britain's television series, The Quarter, Quartermass Experiment in 53, is in the process of devolving into such an all-devouring organism. As the blob was in the works, similar menaces were starring in films in the UK, X, The Unknown, Japan, The H-Man, and Italy, Kaltiki, The Immortal Monster. However, after the blob, these kind of creatures mostly dropped off the radar. Films ranging from The Creeping Terror in 64 to Killer Clowns from Outer Space in 88 mimic the structure of the blob, as well as such conventions as the old alcoholic derelict who's the first victim of the monster and the hard-ass cop who makes life difficult for the heroes. But their creatures are different. I, I just thought that was an interesting comparison to sort of you know, the blob being kind of unique out there. And then there's mm -hmm. one other section in here that I think does a nice job of kind of painting the role of this film and the filmmakers near the end of Newman's liner notes. It says, it's a singular coincidence that Harris sought and found backing for a science fiction horror film from a religious group, just as Edward D. Wood Jr. did for Plan 9 from Outer Space Evidently, science fiction and horror were slipping from the regular Hollywood schedules, even along Poverty Row, and filmmakers from outside the mainstream were taking up the slack. In this, The Blob was the forerunner of Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which abandoned Los Angeles, despite its easy access to the prime sci-fi location of Bronson Canyon, in favor of odd pockets of heartland desperation. When the blob invades a cinema in the climax, paralleling an attack in William Castle's The Tingler, it's serving notice that while the movies might be changing, the amorphous monsters will no more be shut out of cinemas than the necking, seat-staining, upholstery-tearing teenagers who love them. I just thought that was beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And those, again, some great movies that you could put an awesome double or triple feature together with with the blob uh, i'm a big fan of cal yes. myself and uh i mean that's just something that came out on blu-ray not too long ago and it looks gorgeous and the like i said i interrupted you to say i love the magnetic monster i've been talking about that on facebook recently i'm a big fan of that too but i think the blob really is tops when it comes to these types of yeah. movies and I mean, I know people like Stephen King appreciate this movie. If not for this, would we have that segment in Creepshow? Right. Where he, where he plays the guy who finds the meteor with the thing in it. Right. You know, right. and it's just influential in so many ways. Have you seen the 88 remake? Yeah, it's been, I saw it at the theater. I was in college at the time and I'd like to see it again. You know, it's interesting as I was reading this, you know, one of the things that they talk about when the eighties was such a prime time for remaking 1950s sci-fi horror movies, right? The thing and the blob and, you know, on and on and on. One of the real differences that I recall in the 88 remake is that, we lose some of that amorphous blobism with, you know, no intent, just this sort of force of nature because the blob itself has kind of has mouths and it has almost like tentacles where it can reach out and grab you. And it becomes very much like the thing, John Carpenter's version of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it becomes, it, 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 it at least implies that it's thinking. 
um, that it's a conscious being in a way that doesn't diminish the terror of it, but it changes the nature of something that in this original film, we have no idea whether there's anything conscious other than just the, the need to eat like some sort of a sea slug, you know, or something <laughs> where there's no, there's no assignment of, of thought or reason to it. And the 88 film, I think, which is a gross out eighties movie. And I, and I like it. I, I need to see it again. I might even watch the Larry Hagman version just because I'm sort of, on the the blob kick now, but well, uh, you're a collector, man. That's, that's what it is. It's the completest in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely am going to pull out some of these other um, Jack Harris produced films. I it's been years since I've seen Equinox or Schlock, and it just really want, makes me want to go back and watch those films. I love Equinox. I mean, it, and again, this is Equinox is one of those movies that, by all rights, shouldn't be as entertaining as it is because of all the limitations and the people that were making it and where they were in their career. But it's it's still a fun little monster movie. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, I haven't seen the 88 blob in a long time. So to prep for this, I, you know, went on YouTube and watched the trailer and saw a few clips here and there. And yeah, it's really different. The monster in that with the tentacles and everything. I mean, again, that's kind of Lovecraftian because you got the Shugoth thing going on. Right. But it's really different. It, it's a more malevolent thing. And Frank Darabont wrote it. I mean, he was involved with the screenplay and he's gone on to do amazing things in the genre even before then and since then right but i don't feel the draw to go to watch that one again i think i'd rather go back and watch beware the blob yeah at some point yeah. just just to see that you know yeah. i don't think i've seen that all the way through i don't think i've seen it i'm not sure that i have either uh i, I think largely because it's pretty hard to watch you know? <laughs> <laughs> but i can do it at, in the name of research and completism like you said when you, have, mm-hmm. when, you know, it's, it's if you're just casually watching it it's kind of hard to maintain the the interest but of course that one sets up with the fact that uh, you know it's a direct sequel, and uh, Jack Harris was involved, um, and it's I think Larry Hagman was it his only director, the only role as a director he ever had, or at least his first one, and it even had Cindy Williams right from Laverne and Shirley in it, so it's kind of awesome. And Dick Van Patten, right, come on, right? You know, <laughs> so it's another one of these like the original Blob, I mean, these people who went on to be very influential, which is like wow. Unlike the 58 Blob, Beware of the Blob is not a classic. <laughs> but because the Arctic begins to melt, right, now we're in the 70s and we're in the time of a lot of environmental horror and sci-fi movies, right? This is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the time of frogs and, uh, you know, all these movies that are, you know, Squirm and everything else that was coming out at the time. You know, I'm, Grizzly. Old, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> the newspaper ads and the movie posters for those films. I was not old enough to see those at first run theater, but I have distinct memories of seeing the movie posters and the, and the ads and the paper for all of them. And of course, famous monsters um, covered all of those movies as they were coming out too. Which sure. And all that. So I have a lot of, sort of deep memories of that period of the 70s. I don't really remember Beware of the Blob in 72. I was uh, six years old, and I certainly didn't see it. <laughs> but uh, it, it is one that I think if I can find, I'm going to go back and watch now. I think I've got the Criterion release of the of the Blob here. If I don't, I, I definitely need to get my hands on it. But I also show it was released in the UK a couple of years ago on Blu-ray by Fabulous Films. Ah. And and supposedly it's a new transfer from, it's a 4K scan. And I don't know how that would compare to the Criterion edition. I don't know what kind of special features it has, but 
you know, of course I'm interested. So I'll have to look into that as well. Yeah. With his uh, original aspect ratio on standard 4.3 televisions, it's a 4K resolution on, the, on, oh, okay. on, on this one as well. It's really nice. It holds up really well. And that's one of the nice things about a lot of these old movies, when you get them on Blu-ray, you know, really, you really see the seams, right? You see the strings and you see things like that because they're just so clear. Um, but the blob didn't really rely on those kind of special effects. And so you don't get that. Um, mm-hmm. That's um, right. I, you know, I, so I think because of the nature of the, the special effects and the monster itself, it maybe actually makes it hold up um, even better visually because of that. It does have a certain timeless quality when it comes to the monster itself, and and that you don't see the zipper running up the back of the suit because right. there's no suit. You know, it's right. something again so alien, so different. Listeners, if we haven't convinced you to see this movie or at least revisit this movie, what podcast are you listening to? <laughs> really, this movie—it's excellent. It really is a fun little film and is scary where it needs to be, and fun and bouncy where it needs to be. I am so glad we talked about this. George, I know we've talked about having you on the show for years. You and I have talked about uh, well, like the At the Earth's Core and that series of films and, and a few other things here and there. I'm so glad we settled on this. I am too, at least as our first one, because yeah. I think oh, the other ones that we've talked about, I love and I look forward to talking about them. But when it comes down to an absolute um, true Monster Kid classic, this one goes in my top ten uh, for a lot of people, I think it's probably in the top 20. It, it's just really great that we were able to cover this. I really had fun doing it. Easily, easily in my top 20 for sure. And depending on what day of the week, it might end up in the top 10, but you know, it depends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe exactly. after I have an actual encounter with the blob at Monster Bash, it'll go a little bit further up my list. Oh man, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to pictures. And by the time this goes out, it'll already be in the books. And we'll look forward. I'm sure there'll probably be an episode that comes out of all the great stuff there. And and I uh, wish I was going to be joining you, but uh, you're going to be in great company, of course. Oh, well, I appreciate that, man. And I'm hoping to get at least one or two episodes out of it. I, I plan on covering as much as I possibly can. And there's going to be a lot of podcasters there. You can't have a bunch of podcasters at an event and not get it recorded for something. So right. uh, uh, you'll hear about it. You'll hear about it. In the meantime, though, if people want to hear from you, they need to go to, well, you've got a couple of different places we mentioned, Collecting Classic Monsters, which is a great site. I really enjoy it. Of course, it makes me wish my wallet was a little bit bigger every time I look at it. I mean, right now, as of this recording, you've got that that model, that figure of Vampirella. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's – I tried, like I said, I I always want to cover – classic characters Um, i do go outside of just you know the sort of the universal figures and i do cover current and upcoming releases as well Uh, you know so i've got that current figure that's coming out which is just an amazing it's got something like 36 points of articulation and there's no joints in it i mean it's really quite a feat of design i think and at the same time i'm also in the midst of a series on sort of classic monster kid soundtracks and a soundtrack of vinyl and special effects records, those good old, you know, chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house type of records. And I'm going back oh, and I'm covering, yeah. 
all of those bit by bit. And so I try to keep it varied. I've always got about 90 articles I want to write, and I'm lucky to get one out at a time. And so I try to stick to some sort of a theme. But uh, www.collectingclassicmonsters.com is the website. Mm-hmm. Um, love it. if You can sign up for their newsletter. I'm unfortunately a little inconsistent on sending that out. But um, one of the best places to really engage is on our Facebook page, which is Collecting Classic Monsters. Anytime I publish on the website, I, of course, share that on the Facebook page. I'm on Twitter with at Collect Monsters, and I'm on Instagram as Collecting Classic Monsters. So if you're on any of those social media, like and follow and engage and, and share your thoughts with us. I also got it. I would be remiss if I didn't put a plug in for the day job. If there are other collectors out there um, of any any form, whether it's movie posters or toys or comic books, check out collect.com. You can either go to us at www.collect.com. It's free to join or you can download the iTunes app. We don't have an Android app yet and then you can upload your collection and it's a really fun place, way to organize your collection. So those are really the two things. Then of course, if you haven't picked up the latest issue of Scary Monsters, I've got a nice three page article in that one and I encourage you to support the effort of Don and Vicky. Monster Kids of the Year, right? Um, yep, for efforts yep. to keep the magazine alive and vital and every issue sold, every new subscription. I obviously want to do everything I can to support their efforts. Sure, definitely. Uh, again, there will be links in the show notes to all of this, as well as we didn't talk about it, Ray Gun Daily and Masks and Capes, because those are also sites that you're involved with. So we'll make sure there's links to that as well. And I think the names of those sites indicate exactly what they cover. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and those are fun as well. So listeners, check it out. George, we're going to have you back on. We have to make it happen. Awesome. I'd love it. I'd love it. I know I've had to reschedule more than once. Nah, you're worth it, man. <laughs> but uh, appreciate your patience with me. And and obviously, I always look forward to the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's going to be weird listening to my own voice for an hour and a half or whatever else. But uh you know, hopefully uh, we'll have a good show in the bag here and let's figure out the next one to cover because there's lots of good ones. There, there still are. There still are plenty. Thanks a lot, George. I appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. Okay, I'll end on that. Yeah, we ended up talking for a while. That's great. This will be did. a good episode. This will be great. Well, hopefully, I, I think the, the telling of the, the the synopsis of the movie probably ran a little long. Sorry about nah, that. That's okay. I mean, it's again, it's all post-production and that's where the, that's, I love this part and, and I love the friendships and the relationships that I've developed with podcasting. And I mean, I consider you a friend and yeah, I would sit around and talk monster movies with you for days when it comes to the actual podcasting part of it though. I love editing audio and I know right. that that sounds when people hear that they're like, really? That sounds boring. No, man, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely adore it. I was talking with Chris McMillan yesterday about how much fun it would be to do sound design, sound editing, sound effects for some low-budget monster movie stuff. And if I was anywhere near Chris McMillan, you know I'd be banging on his door saying, dude, let me do some sound effect work for you. Let me edit sound for you. But he's also a control freak, so I don't know if he'd let me. Um, (laughs) Or somebody like Joshua Kennedy or some of these other folks. Um, I would love to do that kind of thing. And and I plan on networking a little bit at the bash, so maybe I can get in with somebody and do some work. That'd be fun. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, I think, you know, you've got your monster kid, uh, writer side up now and, and things of that sort. Mm-hmm, so the mm-hmm. more you can pull project, I, you know, I think the more you can leverage 
your uh, the podcast uh, to build sort of your authority and and to get that to get you gigs and assignments and projects and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't, there's no reason you shouldn't be writing a, a, a column for scary monsters. You know, I've written a couple of pieces for them over the years, and my communication with it was before the new regime. It was with Dennis, and and I like Dennis a lot. Dennis is a great guy. I hope he's going to be at the bash. I'd love to run into him again and thank him for everything he's done for me. But the communication with him, he's a very old school kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, and trying to be in touch with him by email was sometimes difficult. And from what I understand, even the way he put the magazine together was pretty old school. You would send him your article in any format you want because he's just going to retype it by hand anyway. Oh. And that just seems maddening. Right, right. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I don't get that vibe from the current regime at Scary Monsters. I mean, they've really updated the layout and apparently updated the production. So. Yeah, I think they're working really hard at getting it all figured out. It was it was pretty seamless. It was almost all by email. Even the interview we did as sure. as just email exchange, where he sent me questions, I sent him answers, and things like that. And you know, they um, the editing and all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty seamless. Um, but you know, again, it's one of those things where if you, you know they're they're just trying to get this thing up and running and figure out how to make money at it too. So mm-hmm. um, I look at it as a great way to extend the brand and extend in the reach and um, promote the website, but you know, they're not right. paying They're not paying writers. So no, the, and that's, I don't think you're going to find that in any of this super niche stuff is that you're right. going to find, you know, a paying market for it, which, you know, is unfortunate. But on the other hand, it, it's like you said, it's building the brand. It's like we talked about at the beginning of this, there's no money in podcasting. I can't, you know, get paid to do monster kid radio, but I can leverage it into other things. It's community building. It's brand building. Right. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, good right. fun. I got to go make a uh, a dish to to take to uh, the Mem's rap party tonight here. So, figure out what uh, guacamole or whatever we're gonna make. Which <laughs> gotta, I, gotta, I get to attend the bonfire live tonight. Really, you're gonna be on the bonfire podcast? Well, they, I don't know if they're doing a podcast tonight. Oh, okay. But it's at Hater's House, which is where they do the bonfire. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. And that's we'll, amazing. They'll be having the podcasts or having the bonfire, I think, as part of the, the rap party. So okay. Well, give fun. my best to everybody. I know I I'm going gonna, gonna to see three of them. Well, I guess Mitch isn't going to be there. I'm going to see two of them uh, at Monster Batch, and then I get to see Mitch as well. But, uh, you know, I've never had a chance to meet anybody other than Mim, and even that was just way too brief. So please right. give, them, give them my regards, uh, everybody, uh, and I wish them the best of luck with their movie. Will do. Will do. And then um, – I'm game. This was a super fun time. We broke the seal. And so whether it's <laughs> Day of the Triffids or At the Earth's Core or Land the Time for God, or I still think we could probably do the Amicus um, Burroughs trilogy as one Yeah, episode. I think so too. I think so too. Cover Land the Time for God, People that Time for God, and At the Earth's Core in one, maybe. I think so too. I think that would work just fine. But uh, those would be the next two that I'd still throw my hat into the ringer on and I just finished reading, finally, Day of the Triffids. I went back, and I had never read the original story. And uh, so that was interesting. Quite quite different than the movie, obviously. Oh, yeah? Okay. But it's a good read if you're looking for something else to put on your stack. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I need more to do. Right on. <laughs> I am going to go be on an airplane for six hours. Maybe I ought to <laughs> find a book to get lost in. There you in, go. So. There you go. Well, cool, Derek. This is fun. Thanks this so was much a blast. for having me. 
thank you so much for doing it. Have a good rest of your weekend. And Thanks, man. We'll talk right. soon. That recording with George took place uh, at least a month ago. So there's been some more activity and some more action over at CollectingClassicMonsters.com. They've got a store now. should check that out. They're selling some merch, some T-shirts. Uh, they only go up to double XL in terms of sizes. But if you can fit into something like that, and that Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman and the Mummy t-shirt, that's calling my name. Check it out. Also, Collect. Collect.com. That's C-L-E-C-T dot com. There will be a link to Collect and Collecting Classic Monsters and everything else in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And yeah, George, we're going to have you back on the show. Now, I'm really excited about this next bit because George and I talked a little bit about the blob at Monster Bash. About a month and a half ago now? Has it been that long already? Anyway, we're talking about the blob. And there are two people that bring the blob around to these different conventions. And Wes Shanks is one of them. He's the guy who's got the blob in the bucket. Well, he was not at Monster Bash. Instead, we had the son of the director at Monster Bash. We had Irvin Yeworth Jr. at the show. And he did bring pieces of the blob for you to look at. Or buy. He was actually selling it in jars, small pieces of the blob. It was a little rich for my blood, over $100 or so. It was cool to look at, though, and that was awesome. Now, he got up there, and he talked a little bit about the blob. We did a little bit of a Q&A with him. Ron Adams moderated the Q&A and asked some questions. You're going to get to hear that. Now, I processed the audio as best as I could. It goes about 20, 30 minutes. I'm going to cut back in here because, well, I want to let you know what some of the questions were from the audience during the presentation. So. All right, well, we'll start a couple general questions and we'll get into some of the nitty-gritty okay and we want to hear all that gossip that you're, you're kind of <laughs> okay uh for those that don't know uh the blog was directed by irving Yeworth. Uh, now he went by a nickname right yes his nickname was shorty um he's irvin s Hayworth jr i'm irvin s Hayworth the third my son is irvin s Hayworth the fourth and he just had a grandson and, uh is uh Mother said, uh, no, I don't think, I think we'll stay away from the fifth. Uh, so, uh, so, although I did see somebody out behind the, the woodshed with the, with the fifth of Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, now you were... Uh, so his, I'm sorry, to finish that up, his nickname was Shorty, right. before, which is an abbreviation for shortness. Uh, I mean, the six, he used to say I was six, six and a half, six feet and a half tall. He meant six feet and a half inch. Uh, but he, but people expect him to be short because of his name Shorty, but it's just a contraction of short heads. So all three of his names and mine are, are last names. Irvin uh, was with Irvin who all the way back to the American Revolution uh, on that side of the family, and uh, he was a colonel in the American Revolution. Uh, Irvine had an E on the end of the drop over, over time. Short is, uh, is another family name, of course, Gaylord. And uh, my nickname is Chris with a K because they were going to call me, you ready for this? They were going to call me Tertius because I'm the third. And it would have been sort of like a boy named Sue kind of thing. You know? I would have learned to you know, defend myself very early on in school. Fortunately, Sainter has prevailed when I was nicknamed after my father's favorite Norwegian uncle. And so it's Chris with a K, um, just like in Kringle. Uh, all right, and uh, in another more general thing is that maybe a lot of people that know the blob, but they don't realize it wasn't made in Hollywood, California. It was on the other side of the state. Correct. Uh, our film studios with 100 and 
60 acres and 26 buildings used to be the, uh, in Chester Springs, PA, 35 miles west northwest of Philadelphia, and uh, was a summer uh, campus for the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, which is the oldest art institution in the United States. And so they had dormitories, they had three uh, artist studios which had skylights with northern light, so you get that really nice flat light for sculpting and painting without the harsh shadows. But it was great for art, it was terrible for controlling the light for film. So one of the first things that we had to do when we moved there to make film was they put fiberglass with, uh, with tar on the, uh, on the glass skylights. Uh, which probably horrifies uh, artists, but you know filmmakers will understand because the ASA film was so slow that that uh, it was like 16 uh, ASA for reversal uh, film back in those days, and it had needed so much light in order to shoot things. So um, uh, we we had tenors, which were 10,000 watt lights, and, and it's just amazing. Now you can shoot with your you, know, you can shoot in high def of on your phone and you don't need any light. So they've come a long way, but the film is certainly different uh, than, than the digital. Once you get to convert everything to zeros and ones, it's a whole different ballgame. But uh, yes, it was a great place to go up and now after we were there for 22 years, my dad sold to an organization called Historic Fellow Springs, who promptly uh, sold off most of the buildings after complaining that uh, we weren't doing a good job of keeping them up there's another case of your eyes are bigger than your pocketbook. Okay, and uh, to get to some little personal things, sure. uh, Steve McQueen, Patty Duke. So okay. a, few, a few brief stories on All that. All right, well, first of all, Steve McQueen, we met the year before we made the blog because we were doing a, uh, a 16 millimeter, I think it was about 40, 45 minute long film for the Salvation Army, and it was a drama. And uh, uh, Anthony Frank, who was, uh, plays, I think, Tony, uh, one of the teenage kids in the, in the blog, uh, was, was in that as well, so we knew him from that film. And uh, coincidentally, he was in the, the, uh, the film that Stephen Queen made the year before uh, in, about St. Louis uh, with, it wasn't John Barrett, it was Bar Barrett, one of the Barrymore's, I think, was in it. And he was a Jewish kid. He was playing, Steve was playing a Jewish kid. He got picked on by the gang members. So those two, coincidentally, were in the film that Steve was in before, but he had a, he was an interesting part, but he wasn't the lead. Um, so uh, he used to come down because he was dating a girl who was in uh, Desperate Measures, which was the film that we made in 1956 for. Um, for the Salvation Army. And uh, so he had a suit up Oldsmobile uh, at that point. And then when he came back, he had an Austin Healy. And, uh, and when, when he saw me, we were down by the garage in the pump house, and he said, hey, Chris, we're going to have a great summer. Because he really had a thing for. Uh, that doesn't sound right. Um, he, he definitely had a soft spot in his heart for because he had been in and out of you know, reform school type situations in his life. And he, he gave uh, money to a charitable organization that worked with, you know, with, I don't know if they were homeless boys or underprivileged. Big brother kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I think a summer camp thing. So he was, he was doing it and I knew all the back roads, so he wanted to 
you know, people take me for a ride in his awesome Healy. I say, hey, there's a really great road here with a great Esther. You know, and, um, and they weren't as well paid as they are today. But uh, um, we, had, we had a lot of fun, and then uh, he uh, stopped talking to me, and I didn't find out until about 10 or 15 years ago that my father said to him, see, stay away from my kids. He was afraid it was going to be a bad influence on me. So uh, I always wondered why that happened. Now and then I found out. So, but he was he was he was always good to me. Patty Duke, another thing. She was uh, she was she had I don't know if it was notoriety or whether you said, but because those quiz shows were always uh, you know rigged, and she won thirty two thousand dollars on the wasn't the sixty four thousand dollar question. It was called the, the sixty four thousand dollar challenge. It was because they couldn't get enough of these game shows. And uh, she won thirty-two thousand uh, dollars. I think her category was spelling. So we never watched that kind of TV. So I didn't know who she was. And so when she showed up, I thought, "Well, she's cute." And uh, so we, uh, she thought I was cute, um, and she taught me how to French kiss. And what can I say? Don't know. It was four D man. Four D man is in nineteen fifty-eight. The year after. The year the release of the blog, we were filming the, the, the 4D Man, which has a 1959 release date. So it's really tough to get your head around. <laughs> all right, well, I'm sure people have all kinds of questions. You won't we feel some. Uh, anyone have a question for Greg? Now, at this point, somebody in the audience was asking if Chris had any experiences or was involved in the production of Dinosaurus, which is another really cool movie. I really enjoy that one, too. It's got a great Ronald Stein soundtrack. Anyway, I'm going to play a little bit from that trailer, and then we're going to get to his response. Rampaging in an unsuspecting world, living creatures from the dawn of time. What havoc will they wreak? What lives will they destroy? What depths of panic and terror will they create? Dinosaurus, the most amazing, astounding, astonishing adventure of them all, beyond anything your mind can imagine, never before seen on the screen. I wasn't involved other than the fact that my father moved us all to California for six months while we shot that, and I did go on uh, on the soundstage, and I uh, was, they were between setup shots with the caveman uh, about to be, you know, Rocked to sleep or lullaby by Christina Hansen. Um, so I saw that. I was frankly much more impressed that uh, at California Studios were, were shot there. Uh, they had the permanent set, uh, street set for Gunsmoke. And I was uh, much more impressed at that point and seeing, you know, I was looking for Miss Kitty on Main Street, but she wasn't there. They were shooting that day. But it was really cool to stand on that, on that lot. But, I didn't, other than that, go into that, my, you know, I went to junior high, John Burroughs High, right near the gray tar pits, and uh, right by the, uh, the farmer's market, and they had a great joke shop and a lot of other stuff. I really wasn't involved, didn't see any of the special effects. I did for the Bob and the 4D men, since they were shot you know, across the street. Uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of that stuff, uh, and, uh, but I, I really didn't participate at all. I just was a normal 12-year-old kid uh, uh, going to seventh grade and, uh, and, uh, and experiencing the joys of 
Somebody else from the audience asked him which of his father's films was his favorite. Just from a filmmaking point of view, I think I like 4D Man the best. I think 4D Man is the best film. 
Uh, it doesn't have all the cultural elements that, the, you know, the card teenagers and, you know, Midnight Spook Show and all that, all that, all that really campy stuff from the 50s. But Bob Lansing was such a great actor in his performance of the, uh, of the, of the anti-hero, you know, struggling with the good and evil. And it's just really, is is really great. And, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, Robert Strauss, who's in Starlight 17, you know, plays a scientist. And, and when he came down for the filming of the 4D Man, he brought his family down because we had all these buildings and rooms and stuff left over. And he brought the first movie player song, so in 1958. So, uh, but I, I, I and I love jazz, uh, the the jazz score that Ralph Carmichael did in the 4D Man. Um, and of course, he did the music for the Blob and. Uh, and you hear them every year when you listen to Nat King Cole's uh, Chestnut Roasting on the Fire. Ralph Carmichael did the, uh, the, the score for that and the arrangements. And uh, because Nat's normal arranger wasn't available and he got so mad, he, he said, Give me somebody else who can write like that. And Ralph did it. And then uh, Nat King Cole was just so impressed that he did everything that Nat King Cole did for the rest of it. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life, the feats ascribed to 4D Man, $1 million in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. Here's geeky fan minutia for me. Okay. Okay, in, in the movie The Blob, when I was a kid, when I was a kid and saw The Blob, and it had the theater saying, uh, Daughter of Hard with Bella, with Bella Lugosi. I, I thought, because I was always studying famous monsters, and I said, that's wrong, he's not in Daughter of Hard. <laughs> Later I learned, as I'm sure for many of us, we do the, the spook shows, Bella Lugosi would host a lot of those, and that's what I think what your dad or whoever came up with that was wedding this the Blob is back in a horrifying new adventure. And you are there, startled, stunned, terrified, as the blood-red creature rolls over and eats everything in its path. We're going to burn the place down. I can't take any chances. Beware. Starring Robert Walker, Gwyn Guilford. First thing you do when you get home, you go fishing. You know that's not the first thing I did when I got back home. Beware, Godfrey Cambridge. Beware, Carol Lindley. Beware, Shelley Berman. You would like a haircut? Yeah, $400. Beware, the blob. Larry Hagman and his pals tried to stop the blob with a pitchfork. Beware the blob. Consuming human flesh on contact. 
don't suppose you got any identification. Nothing can stop it. Not fire. Not water. Not even bullets. What do you mean? Huh? That thing. That's it. See Son of Blob. Mark your calendars and plan to attend PIY 2017. PIY is the Podcast It Yourself workshop, and it's happening in Phoenix, Arizona, October 28, 2017. This interactive workshop is being held for people who want to start a podcast or want to learn more about podcasting from experienced and respected podcasters. Learn about software, hardware, accessories, best practices, and more. And of course, we've got prize drawings to make podcasters weak in the knees. The workshop coincides with the long-awaited release of Podcasting for Dummies, 3rd Edition. Authors T. Morris and Chuck Tomasi will be at DIY to answer questions and sign books. Oh, and it also happens to be T's birthday, so come help him celebrate after the workshop is done. You do not want to miss this event. Spaces are limited. Go to podcastingfordummies.com and sign up for PIY 2017. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Podcastingfordummies.com and PIY 2017. Go. Now. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for tagging along and letting me get into your eardrums and talk monsters with you. I love having you guys and gals on board as part of the Monster Kid Radio audience. Thank you for being part of the experience with me this week. Now, before anybody starts sending me emails, I know that I misspoke during the conversation with George. I mentioned that Daughter of Horror with Bela Lugosi didn't exist, that maybe it was the title for Dementia 13, which was a Francis Ford Coppola film that he did with Roger Corman. Well, actually, I'm wrong. It wasn't Dementia 13. It's just a movie called Dementia. And there's a really weird trailer for it. I'm going to drop it in here, but I'll tell you, some of the words on the screen, they aren't spoken because apparently this movie had no dialogue. Daughter of Horror. Here is tense, taut, chill-filled drama that shocks you with hair-raising horror. Not one word is spoken on the screen. The 
strangest motion picture you have ever seen. Daughter of Horror. You know, as cool as Daughter of Horror with Bela Lugosi sounds, I'm a lot more interested in seeing a story or a movie or a short, doesn't matter, maybe even actual, just a trailer. I mean, give me a trailer for this, at least, of the vampire and the robot, or is it the robot and the vampire? Whatever, it's the title they put on the Forbidden Planet movie poster. I want to see that. I want that in my life, somehow. Make it happen, please. So, anyway, back to the blob. It was just a lot of fun to chat with George, and, you know... I think at some point I am going to talk about Beware of the Blob or Son of the Blob here on the show in the future. Just got to find somebody who has seen the movie and loves it so that we can talk about that amazing um, movie. Anyway, okay, so everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio is over at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find links in our show notes, everything that we talked about in the show, links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group, and huge thanks to a number of you who have liked the Facebook page recently. As of right now, we are up to over 1,100 likes on Facebook. I'd love to get us a little bit higher, maybe 1,500 by Halloween. Is that possible? With your help, maybe. If you do know anybody out there who loves classic monster movies, being a monster kid or podcast or whatever, please invite them to come over and like the page. And of course, join the group because that's where the conversations are happening with listeners between Monster Kid Radio episodes or even while they listen. Of course, over on our website, you're also going to find our contact information. I mentioned it at the top. I'm going to mention it again. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is our email address and our voicemail line 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I've also got buried in the show notes a link to our T Public shop where you can buy a Monster Kid Radio T-shirt, sticker, pretty much any kind of merchandise you can pick up on T Public. You can get and represent Monster Kid Radio and throw a couple bucks our way by doing that, or you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and join our Patreon campaign. There's a link there too. I want to talk about what's coming up next week on Wednesday, next week on Thursday, the show, and then in a few weeks at a comic book convention here in town. So first of all, Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema here in Tigard, Oregon. I just found out, in fact, as I'm recording this, I just got a Facebook message from Dominique Lamsey's. Remember that name? She says, hi, just so you guys know, they're showing Kaltiki for Weird Wednesday next week. Kaltiki. It's such a wonderful movie. The Blu-ray, actually, I just watched part of it the other day. Again, it's just a gorgeous transfer. It looks so good. And it's a great film. It's like The Blob but greasier and grittier and just awesome. (laughs) Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. Space Beyond Space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. All 
anything on this earth stop Cal Tiki, the immortal monster. So uh, that's happening next week, Weird Wednesday, at the Joy Cinema. Unfortunately, I haven't been at any point this year. It's been a while. But it's a free event if you're 21 and over. Typically, movies start between 9 and 9.15. Look up the Joy Cinema on Facebook or check out their website to find out more about it. It is free. You don't have to pay to get in. But please, hit up the snack bar. That's how they stay afloat. That's how they can do Weird Wednesday and bring awesome movies like Cal Tiki to you for free. So that's Wednesday night. Thursday, well, the next episode of Monster Kid Radio is going to drop. And remember Dominique Clamsey's name? I told you to remember that. Well, she's going to be back on the show next week as well. She's been on the show once before at the Joy, actually, when I hosted Scarathon. We had her chat with us for a few minutes. This is the first time she's been on the show full on as a regular guest. And I had a brilliant time recording with her. I've chatted with her since. I've recorded with her since for something else. I'm going to have her back on the show again in the near future. In fact, next month. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Next week, we're talking about 1943's Phantom of the Opera from Universal. Here is all you've ever wanted in entertainment in one superb show. Here is matchless story, suspenseful, terrifying, never so thrillingly presented. Here in breathtaking technicolor is superb spectacle and splendor and romance. Here is a chorus of a hundred voices, a ballet of a hundred dancers, a cast of a thousand. Starring Nelson Eddy in his most vigorous performance, lovely Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music! You've stolen it! You've stolen my music! love Dominique's take on this film and just classic monster movies in general. So that's going to be a lot of fun uh, for me, and I hope it's fun for you. Later on, in a few more weeks at the Rose City Comic Con, I'm hosting a panel. I'm moderating a panel at Rose City Comic Con. It's called Universal Unite with Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to be up there on stage guiding a conversation with panelists. Chris McMillan. He's been on the show. Dominique Lamsey's. Well, we just got done talking about her. And Jeff Dean, somebody who I think is maybe, well, I don't know if he's actually technically he's ever been on MKR. We've been in the same space before, and I've been on the Kaiju cast with him before. It's going to be a treat because we're going to talk about Dark Universe, what Universal is cooking up with the mummy, the Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, anything else he might be doing. We're going to talk about what works with those films, or with the mummy anyway, what didn't work and what we as monster kids hope happens moving forward with the dark universe. I don't think you're going to want to miss it. It's going to be a great conversation and there's going to be prizes. I've gotten commitments from filmmakers, Joshua Kennedy and Christopher RMM. They're going to be donating some movies for us to give out to people in the panel audience. Not sure how you're going to win it yet, but you'll just have to come by the panel to find out if you're in the area. Rose City Comic Con is happening September 8th, 9th, and 10th at the Oregon Convention Center here in Portland, Oregon. 
The Universal Unite panel is happening on Saturday afternoon. I believe 4.30 is the exact time. There is going to be a panel with the Kaiju cast earlier in the day. So I know there's going to be some hot Godzilla action happening there as well. And I'd love to see you. I'm going to be walking around the convention floor with my recorder. If you see me, I'll be the guy wearing the Monster Kid Radio t-shirt. I'm hard to miss, and I would love to chat it up and talk monsters. Speaking of which, I could talk monsters all day and all night, but I've got to get this show out into the pod waves because you guys and gals, well, you're just waiting for it. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to wrap up and we're going to get this show out there. Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. And we're going to close out with a song. It has to do with the blob. It's called One Night in 57. This is a song by the band Chris Yeaworth and the Molten McQueens. It's off their album, One Night in 57. And when I chatted with him at Monster Bash, he gave me the okay to play this on Monster Kid Radio. So I hope you enjoy that. And I hope you come back next week for more monster action. My name is Derek M. Cook. Ciao. Something came around The molten meteor came a-crashing down It changed forevermore the face Of this sleepy old town It brought horror, chills, and laughter All at the same time And fifty years later People still stand in line To run out of the theater Being chased by that giant red slime Well, it landed out Chester Springs when no one was around Slowly poked the stick at it Which part turned upside down And it might have died out there Cause there was nothing around left to eat We know it didn't like Pepsi But Steve McQueen drove it into town At a breakneck pace It ate Stephen Chase And the nurse at old Doc Seuss's place Pretty soon it threatened The entire human race One night 57 was all that it took to make its name famous in the cinema books. Jack Ted and Shorty Steven needed Gene Ralph and Burt. But Bill Vincent Tom, but only Eli got hurt. So if someone comes to town and says, Doesn't anything ever happen around here? You can refer them to my favorite year. That night in 57 when the monster came to town. Come on, everybody, let's go look for it, all right? Uh, Downingtown Headquarters, this is Phoenixville. We have a report of some rowdy teenagers at the Colonial Theater acting up at the Midnight Smoke Show. There's probably nothing to it, but we're asking you to stand by while we go to check it out. Because these crazy kids get out of hand and we need backup. I don't know what these teens are thinking. We'll never get through the 50s in this race. Over. Well, before it left the continent, it sure got around. From Chester Springs to Phoenixville and Downingtown. It stopped at Jerry's Market and Rofo, but we all got a clue. But even though the grown-ups wouldn't listen to the teens, they finally got together and they all found the means to see the sunrise after the longest night in local history. 
57 when the molten meteor crashed. 